Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast about liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as usual, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America. And uh, today, Father Stephen, I wanted to talk about another church father. Who are we talking about this week? Uh, Clement, Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome. Was he a bishop? Yes, he was. Indeed, traditionally, uh, we're told Irenaeus, uh, who gives us a list of the various bishops of Rome, starting you know with Peter, he would be the fourth, he would be the third successor to, to Peter. Mm, okay. Oh, wow. Linus, Anacletus, and then Clement. Okay. Peter, Linus, Anacletus, and Clement. So, so obviously very close to... Yeah, personally acquainted, traditionally personally acquainted, we're told, uh, with, with Peter and Paul. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, he knew Peter and Paul. <laughs> right, that's the, um, that's the traditional understanding is he knew them, yes. So what, what survives of Clement? What do, we, what do we have from him? Well, we have a lot of things that claim to survive from Clement. Oh, okay. uh, but we have one really very important letter that we know comes from Clement. Uh-huh. Uh, that we, you know, the, the very, an authentic uh, piece from the time. That's what we're going to talk about today a lot. But there's, uh, you know, it's important. Clement was a well-known figure. It says a lot about him. Because when you're a well-known figure, if you're going to try to, um, you know, put a, you want to attach a book to a famous name, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, those are the names you'll choose. So the very fact we have a lot of other stuff out there that had Clement associated with tells us a lot that, about how important the actual figure was. So you're, you're saying that people in the ancient world would actually attribute writings to a name like Clement as a way oh, sure. of kind of... Name dropping, yeah. Okay, so it, it was it. Explain what that meant. Did that mean someone who was writing in the tradition of this person, or or why would you name your writing some? Well, sometimes you just simply had people who wanted to give them credibility and things, and we just oh, simply okay. claim to be. Uh, we call it pseudepigrapha, false writings in the sense of writings that you know just. Um, oh, interesting. They claim put somebody else's name on it. They don't huh. listen to this person. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, it's kind of like of reverse thing. plagiarism or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> All right. All right, so we've got a bunch of fake stuff attributed to Clement. Yeah, one is, is, uh, is, uh, is really interesting, called The Recognitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it was, it's like a novel. Oh, it okay. has Peter and Simon Magus, and uh, we have relatives who disappeared and were found again. I mean, it's a, it's a, it really gets you going. Wow, kind of a it's Dan like a primitive Brown novel. Yes, a, yes, exactly. Kind of thing. <laughs> but we do have, um, uh, you know, this is uh, the writing we have today that was a very ancient one. And uh, uh, a very authentic writing. It actually was actually connected with uh, the Alexandrinus is one of the uh, codices. That means one of the collections, like a book, uh, of the, with New Testament writings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was put with them, not as a New Testament writing, but it's a really important writing to be preserved. It's right there in that in that codex. Okay. So they call it the first letter to the Corinthians. Okay. So tell me, what's in the, what's this letter about? Well, actually, what had happened um, in in this letter is the Church of Corinth, the famous Church of Corinth, mm-hmm. actually had decided to get rid of all of its elders. Oh, no. it had, Wait, so the Corinthians are up to their old tricks again? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> something's never changed. There is okay. consistency. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, the tradition lives on. But okay. they had basically dumped, uh, dumped their elders, 
and the church at uh, Rome weighs in. There are two things that claim to be letters, uh, you know, by Clement to the first uh, to Corinthians. The second one clearly isn't from him. Okay, you know, but the first uh, probably is, although it only mentions the church at Rome. It's written we. It never actually mentions his name. Okay, but it's actually a formal letter from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth. Okay, so it would have been of the time that he was bishop at Rome. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this would have gone through him. Okay, so so when when was it written? Uh, probably about 96 or so during the persecution of Domitian. Okay. That's about the same time that the book of Revelation was probably right, written, about right? That, yeah. right about that time. It's sort of interesting. That he, they, uh, at the beginning of the letter, it says we would have written earlier, but <laughs> okay. things have been busy around here. Sort I see. Of, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's, been, there's been a persecution on. Yeah, um, uh, so so tell, me about, tell me about what this what reading this letter feels like obviously we can't read the whole thing on the air but but what what is it like reading this you know what 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 genre of of writing are it's we talking um about? exhortation it's basically trying to tell people why they did the wrong thing mm-hmm. and it goes through a lot of um again sort of like a sermon going through a lot of examples from the old testament about you know lack of humility pride you know rebellion etc and how this had bad results and here's yeah. the right way how christians actually should behave mm-hmm. and now let's apply it to specifically your situation it's very well written, and the style is very literary in a very good sense. It's very readable. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah. Not always true of early works, but this is a very yeah. readable work. <laughs> I see. All right. Um, so, so tell me, tell me what's important about about First Clement. You know, what what of what profit is it is is reading it? A lot of interesting things. Just one historical thing is, you know, one thing is nice to be able to anchor. Uh, things in time and the like. And one thing here is we actually know a lot about Clement. We know who he was, position, the date, all that kind of thing, uh, which is helpful. But the actual things in the letter themselves is, first of all, it actually gives us testimony about uh, Paul's trip to Spain, that he actually made it to Spain. Remember, mm-hmm. we talk in the Scripture about his intent to go to to, to, um, to Spain. Remember, he mentions in the Epistle of the Romans. Yeah. He wants to go there. Uh, we're told he actually went there. And it mentions both his martyrdom and the martyrdom of Peter. So that kind of, you know, thing as past events, you know, that they have, you know, we know that. Yeah, yeah. He talks about those as past events. He also tells us some information on Nero's persecution of Christians. You know, we also have uh, Tacitus talks about that as well, the Roman historian, Mm -hmm. Uh, but talks about, you know, uh, the persecution as well. Uh, So that's interesting. Uh, but also a very clear teaching. Again, what was the problem with what had happened there? It wasn't, there's no doctrinal issues that are raised in the letter. It appeared they just didn't like their elders. <laughs> and the basic point, uh, a few things comes that are interesting here, is first of all, it makes a clear distinction between the, uh, you know, the elders and deacons, you know, basically what we'd say today called the clergy and laity. It makes a very clear distinction there. Mm-hmm. And it points out, as we might think, there are two ways you're looking at it. Sometimes in uh, more uh, evangelical traditions, we tend to think of the the uh, the pastor or something in a church as uh, sort of the employee. You know, mm-hmm. we choose one mm-hmm. who's a good preacher, etc. And if they don't, we get somebody else. So you you, you would you know. It, we, we tend to think of it like, you know, if you're not doing a good job, you might get fired, you know. Right. It's sort of like, um, again, like we would say in our country, for in democracy, we say, you know, that, uh, you know, that uh, authority results from the consent of the governed. Right, yeah. Sort of yeah, that yeah. sort of point. That's where authority, the root of authority is the consent of the governed is mm-hmm. how American, whereas remember the tradition was in Europe before our government is sort of divine right of kings. Sure, you know, sure. That they rule by the grace of God, king of England, you know. Right, right, right. Et cetera. And so the position taken here, however, is that the authority in the church, uh, all authority in the church, let me, individual churches, comes from the apostles. You know, mm-hmm. the apostles appointed 
the elders, and the elders appointed their successors. Mm. The argument's made in simply saying that the authority doesn't come from you. It came from that appointment. You might have something to say, you might say in, 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 in which people are appointed, but the laying on hands is what confers mm-hmm. that power. Final. She's basically saying that... Um, uh, that they don't have that power. Okay. I'm saying this is this is really illegitimate. Basically, the church has no cannot simply throw out its elders. You shouldn't have fired your elders. <laughs> you can't. You can't. The thing is simply can't. not possible. Yeah, yeah. And arguing that they should make good on this. Got that it. The people who caused this ought to go elsewhere now, sort of under discipline, in the sake of love for restoration. Got it. It's interesting, being a very early writing, we've talked about that elsewhere, as we say, when with Ignatius in the early 2nd century, mm-hmm. we start getting to clearly one person who's the bishop, yeah. and then we have a council of elders and deacons. Yeah. Here, we don't have that kind of clarity. You know, okay. we, we have to talk about bishops and deacons and, and things. Uh-huh. So we don't have that kind of clarity yet. But we clearly have this distinction between uh, clergy and uh, laity. I see, I see. Okay. An interesting thing here, too, is... You know, with Christian iconography, you know, when we say Christian art, you know, not icons, I say, but in the sense of, you know, what do we see early Christian icons like, in catacombs and things? Mm-hmm. One of the things we see early on is the phoenix. Huh. And you you're saying the, the bird? The... You've got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the phoenix, for those of us like the name of Phoenix, Arizona comes from, the mythological bird. Got it. Um, that supposedly lived 500 years and then would rise from its ashes. Yeah. You know, uh, used as a type of the resurrection, and they actually, this is the first time we have it here. It's a very common, and one of the reasons it's so common, it wasn't considered mythological. You see, one of the things in the ancient world is, again, we know the whole world, mm-hmm. in the sense you, the whole world's been discovered, etc., but there's a sense of wonder. People know there's a lot out there we've never seen. Right. That's like with some of the ancient stories, like Herodotus is a hoot, compared to the Thucydides. Uh-huh. Any story he hears, he gives credence to. I see. Anything <laughs> that happens 80 miles away has got to be true. Got you it. know, no matter got how, it. nothing is too silly. Uh-huh. And so people actually thought this was settled science. I see. Okay. Every, people, this wasn't <laughs> considered a myth. People thought this is just a fact. You just go to Egypt and see. You'd see the, the bird that dies every five Right, every, okay. you'd just go. If you happen the right time, you'd see uh-huh. it. And so we actually have an evidence here is um, uh, he actually mentions this. Hey, this is a great you know, example. You know, it might be a good uh, comparison, analogy with the resurrection of Christ, you know, life see. coming from you know, like, like the phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it wasn't actually a reference to mythology. It was a reference to science. Telling I see. You something okay. about the science yeah. of the time. <laughs> Got it. One thing I think it really says a lot about the, the church at Rome which seeks powerfully is we letter starts out saying, look, we've had trouble around here uh, with a terrible persecution. And there's a prayer, a beautiful prayer that ends this letter. And one of the things about the prayer is praying from the heart for the rulers. Hmm. That were persecuting the Yes, the I mean, and that's, that's, so they have a very high view of, you know, that role. And, you know, the, the church's response to, you know, the to secular power of praying for them, looking for wisdom, these kind of things. Yeah. Given the circumstances, I think it has a special merit to it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I can see that, that you would, you would even, you know, pray for the people that were persecuting you. Yeah, so it wasn't a matter of, gee, their behavior is delegitimized. Not at all. Yeah. They focused on the fundamental legitimacy uh-huh. of secular rule and the need to pray for them. Huh. Interesting. Wow. Now, one issue, though, that a lot of people come up with this letter that we've got to deal with is, mm-hmm. what does it say about the Church of Rome? Yeah, yeah. 
Because what's going on here, and there are basically three ways we could look at this, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the letter, is the first way we could look upon that is, first of all, it's very clear the facts are that the church in Rome is writing a letter about a dispute in another church. It's writing to the church at Corinth and saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Right, right. Not so there, it seems like there's some kind of authority issues going on here. Well, at least they, they certainly don't feel it's it's awkward. Let's start there. Let's say the, the strict facts and then look at three interpretations. Sure. Is that they're clearly meddling, we might say. Yeah, In yeah. somebody else's business. I they're, see. they're talking about, hey, you guys, what's going on there? Uh-huh. And another thing that's happening at the end of the letter, it says, look, is we have some witnesses we sent who are going to come back and tell us what you, what you end up deciding to do. Mm-hmm. So how do we interpret that? And there are basically three ways you could look at interpret the historical situation here. Mm-hmm. One is that, you know, at the beginning of the letter where it says we haven't written before because things have been busy around here yeah. because of this, is we could look upon and maybe somebody had appealed to them. You know, they were a very widely known church. It was, after, after all, it's the capital of the empire. Right. And... Uh, it also is the church of Peter and Paul yeah. and had a you know very well thought of Christian community there. So mm-hmm. it'd be a place to look as, hey, we could imagine, for example, the, the elders who've been deposed saying, hey, help us out here. Could you say something? This doesn't seem right. Or sure. maybe some of the people in the church there said, what's happened here? Yeah. So perhaps they were simply responding. Another uh, possibility would be that they just heard about it and without being asked, simply said, look, as a sister church, like an intervention, say, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. The third possibility uh, that we would be an argument that the Church of Rome felt that it had a special sort of jurisdiction over other churches. Mm, mm. Uh, Roman Catholics often have used this letter as an example of Rome demonstrating it had sort of a primacy over other churches, that it could just go in there and uh, say, hey, what what are you doing? Like a papal sort of A papal sort of um, other bishops, yeah. So those are three things. So again, it could have been, okay, hey, what had happened, because we've talked about in the past, is people looked at the churches that had had the apostles, had these clear, you know, how do we know, like, we said, like, where's the best French spoken or something? And you'd say, well, you know, that kind of thing. Well, maybe somebody from Paris, we'd say, hey, we we give a lot of credibility. Yeah. And so people gave a lot of credibility to the the great churches of the ancient world where the apostles had been and things. Right. had strong traditions. So maybe somebody had appealed to them, and they were simply responding, and that's one possibility. Mm Mm-hmm. The second possibility was, no, that as a concerned church, because the churches clearly saw themselves as united, there was one church, mm-hmm. felt there was a time to say something. What's going on? Yeah. The yeah. public scandal. The other was that they felt that they actually had jurisdiction. That's a third possibility. Mm-hmm. So what do, my take on it would be that the first or second cases are more likely. And okay. it's not just because I'm an Anglican, because yeah. uh, I'm not a Roman Catholic, <laughs> but here's why. First of all, if we were arguing for a special authority based on the presence of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, mm-hmm. then how come the Bishop of Rome is never mentioned? Um, yeah, so direct jur- jurisdictional authority is never appealed to as something we Well, not only do they on. not say, we're the boss, what are you doing, uh-huh. in that sense, because of this, but they never appeal to the position of a bishop. We never even told there is a bishop at Rome that way, in the sense we, we said that he's not mentioned as such. Interesting. They talk okay. about the bishops. Yeah. You know, so there's no direct authority to the position of the Bishop of Rome in the letter at all. It's something right. the church at Rome is writing. Mm-hmm. So there's no appeal to a Petrine office or something in this regard in this letter. Okay. And as far as the, at the end... And also the very fact that, again, it's not like ordering, saying, look, you know, they're giving advice, but it's pretty much advice that we could imagine the Church of Corinth giving to to another church. Right. In the sense, here's the right thing to do, guys. Kind of fraternal... It it has that. It it doesn't seem to be coming from an obvious superior. 
It's sort same. of like you know, two of us working together at the same office saying, saying you're saying, Stephen, you yeah. know, what are you thinking? You know, you, we really, you shouldn't be doing that you know, right, on the right. job or something as opposed to saying, hey, I'm your boss. Yeah, quit that. <laughs> quit that. <laughs> it, it has more of that tone. And sometimes people say, well, what about this business of the, quote, witnesses at the end? But we have that in Paul's letters about – uh, remember, he said a lot of saying, I can't wait to get the result to hear what, what your reaction is, like Second Corinthians. What, you know, sure. uh, is people had to deliver letters in the ancient world. Right. And people would ask, hey, stay a while and see what, see what they said. Yeah, 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 and report back. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they were saying to make sure that their words, that they were carried out. I, I think see, it might yeah. just been pure curiosity. These weren't officers so much as Like witnesses. officers of the courts. Yeah. Here's what we're going, uh, going to do. Yeah, yeah. And again, the encouragement in the letter is, hey, think the guys who caused the difficulty, it'd be the right thing for you guys to do would be to to move over, spend a time away, time out sort of thing. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, This yeah, would be yeah. the, right, the right thing for you to do. So I think what's really important, you know, pretty, where does this come down to at the end in this letter is, uh, first of all, that authority in the church isn't seeing is coming, rising up from congregations inherently sort of choose their pastors. So the pastors mm-hmm. have their own authority yeah. coming from their connection with the broader church over time and with the other churches. I think that's probably the biggest uh, takeaway sure. yeah. uh, from this letter, that the unity of the churches, how they didn't see themselves as just sort of completely independent. They right. saw themselves having a natural connection with each other. And seeing leadership in the church as being something bigger than the individual church. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's. A, I mean, that's 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 definitely a powerful image for us in the in in the United States and in the the Western world. I mean, to see uh, you know a church and a church body that felt the need to correct a fellow church as well. Like, because when you're all involved in the same thing, mm-hmm, yeah. then what one does is going to affect the whole. So anyway, and this reflects yeah. Anglican polity, mm-hmm. because in our polity, for example, is it's true with the church uh, when we when some the uh, churches are certainly involved in the choice of their rectors and things, ab- obviously. However, once the rector is appointed, is they're not simply an employee of the congregation saying, "Ah, we think we could do better." Right. Yeah. I mean, it would you know the, the fact is that they report to the bishop. Yeah. You know that they basically are the spiritual leaders of their congregation. They're not the hired help. It's yeah, not yeah. like leadership. The leadership is the church. You know, right. is, the, is the church board. Yeah. And these are simply the hired help. But you know, like, what is our position on? No, the 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 rather that the church has a say. You know, in helping to choose this. But those leaders actually, their their authority isn't dependent on the mm-hmm. consent per se. It's yeah. their connection with the broader church. Yeah. So this in this respect, the church's model for for leadership doesn't really map very well onto the principles of the market of being deter your your position being determined by your shareholders or your voters exactly it's this is this comes from god right it comes from god that's what they emphasize they said look christ chose his apostles his apostles chose their successors etc but they're they're emphasizing that the the the, the uh you know the power is from the church yeah yeah the broad in the broadest sense it's yeah. bigger than any individual congregation hmm. Great. Well, that's Clement Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome. Thanks so much, Father Stephen. Um, we'll be back in two weeks for more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.